we see kingdom after kingdom, ruler after ruler, just completely fall short of what they were called to. And not only fall short, but really take that role and that position, that authority, and twist it for their own advantage at the expense and the oppression of other people. And then we see God come in and make a gracious covenant with a man. A covenant means this is a a special relationship and promise, agreement between two people. God coming and saying to this man, Abram, I will be your God and you and your children and your children's children and anybody who comes into your community will be my people. And he changes his name and he gives him this purpose and he sends them out to be what he says, a light to the other nations. So that not only those who come in to be part of your people will be my people, but as the rest of the world sees what you are like, he's restoring that initial objective, right? Be a representative to the rest of creation. And as they see, as the watching world sees what it's like to be my people, that they too will want to join in. And the problem is, again, we repeat the same story that all of Abraham and his children and their family and their descendants from that point on and the kingdom of what becomes Israel falls into the same pattern of terrible king after terrible king. And even the best of them still messes up badly time and time again. To the point where God says, listen, I I made this covenant, this promise, this agreement with you that I would... Bless those who bless you. I would curse those who curse you. I would be your God. You would be my people. But he, he also said that I would do these things if you follow me and if you trust me and if you obey me, if you keep my ways. And if you don't, there will be discipline that comes upon you. And so, sure enough, at one point, God sends several prophets to go and tell Israel this. Listen, God says, turn away from worshiping these false things. Turn away from worshiping yourselves. Turn away from oppressing other people in order to get for yourself and start worshiping the true God as king. And if you don't, problems are going to come. And so God's warning them. Give them opportunity after opportunity to turn. And sure enough, time after time, they continue in their pattern of rebellion. And there's one specific prophet who he sends by the name of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah comes and he tells them specifically, listen, There is going to be a kingdom called Babylon that comes in and takes us captive because we have not worshipped the true God. And we're going to be slaves to the nation of Babylon who doesn't worship our God because we have become just as bad as them. And at one point in Jeremiah 25, he tells them, this is going to be for 70 years you're going to be in captivity to Babylon. And of course, they don't want to hear it, but sure enough, Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon comes and he lays siege to Jerusalem and he takes a bunch of their people to come and live in his own palace. He takes the best of their best to come indoctrinate them and make them like Babylonians, make them like his own people. And that's where we find the story of Daniel and his friends. Do you remember their names? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were their slave names that they were changed to later. They're Original Hebrew names were Mishael. It's good. You got one? Azariah and Hananiah. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Yeah, and so 
we get these stories, these beautiful stories of these four men in particular who are being faithful in the culture of Babylon. Now you would think you have just been brought captive to this other nation that doesn't worship God, that they worship a bunch of all these false gods, and they're very impressive people. And there's a lot of just crazy, gnarly stuff going on there. You think in order to be faithful to your God, you would have to somehow remove yourself from that, right? You got to run away. You got to escape from that and go hide somewhere in the mountains so that you can create your own little utopian society of people worshiping the true God. Kind of like a, a monastery in a sense, right? And instead, Jeremiah, that prophet who warned them this is going to happen, he says, no, no, this is what the Lord says. I want you to plant gardens there. I want you to build homes there. I want you to enter into relationship with people. I want you to start families. And I want you to pray for the blessing of that city. Because when it's blessed, you will be blessed. This is what the people of God are supposed to be. Remember this representation of a good God in the midst of creation gone wrong. And so we see that through these four men. And hopefully maybe there were, there were others other men and women and children who are being faithful as well in certain moments. But we get these stories, these glimpses of these four, in particular, Daniel. And Daniel, has he been a pretty good guy up to this point in the story? Yeah. I mean, we haven't gotten any of the stories of maybe the times he messed up. I'm sure he did. He was a human being. But what we are getting as a picture for us as God's people today to live faithfully in the midst of a nation that does not serve him, we are getting pictures of what it looks like to be faithful in Babylon. And so you get all these images of, of Daniel being faithful and standing up for the Lord and being true to him and also loving other people while he's at it. And it's pretty incredible. And now we get to Daniel chapter nine. We've seen that Daniel's had these dreams himself where he knows that there's all these other kingdoms of men and they're, they're beastly kingdoms, they're oppressive, but one day the kingdom of God's going to come and it's going to set all things right. And he's looking forward to that and he's longing for that. And in chapter 9, he gets this message that it's not going to work out quite the way he expects. And there's only like four verses of, of prophecy, we could say, in this chapter, but it has been like some of the most confusing prophetic verses we've ever seen. We're going to get into some mathematical prophecy this morning. I don't know about you guys, but I hate math. Anybody else? Hate it with a passion, okay? Here's the thing. Here's, here's what I'm going to do. I want to warn you guys before I say this next thing that this is an illustration. It's not true because my wife has told me that sometimes I say things that I think are so outrageous it's got to be a joke that other people don't know it's a joke and they get their hopes up. Like when I pick my kids up from school and they're like, hey, what are we doing today? Where are we going? I go, we're going to Disneyland. And they're like, really? And I'm like, no, guys, we're not going to Disneyland. Don't be ridiculous. And they're like sobbing in the back. I'm like, you really thought? So, I, true story. Uh, so I'm going to give you a warning. What I'm about to say, hypothetical, it's, it's for an example. Let's pretend I came into a ton of money. And since we're using our imaginations, I'm also very generous. And I come in and I tell all of you, hey, I want to just, I want to bless all of you. And I have enough money to cover all of your mortgages, your debt, whatever debt you have, cars, whatever, four times over. Now, when we start, like, actually, like, doling out the cash and we come to it and Steve's like, dude, you only gave me enough to pay for my mortgage three times over. You said four times. Do you think, like, he's really going to be upset? Maybe Steve. 
Maybe I should have used John as an example. Just kidding. No, like, who, who needs to pay it four times over? It's ridiculous, right? I, like, I gave him enough to totally pay for all of his debt and then some. He's going to be pretty happy, I imagine. When we come to chapters like Daniel 9, there's all kinds of arguments that start coming up about what do these numbers mean. And listen, let's not get bogged down. We're going to talk about it, yes. It doesn't matter. It's important. We're going to talk about it. But let's not get so bogged down and so divisive over what do these numbers mean when the point of the message that comes to Daniel is a much bigger message. Make sense? Okay. So pray with me and we'll read Daniel chapter 9. Father, we ask for your grace this morning. We ask for, as we look at your word that you had written down generations ago, by the power of your spirit, by your inspiration, and by your servants. God, that you are still speaking this word to us, your people today. We pray that we would see what you were saying to your people then, we would see what you're saying to us now, and that by the power of your spirit, we would be transformed by it to become more and more your representatives in the midst of creation. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 9, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, that's probably right, a Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom. Stop right there, bless you. Chaldean kingdom, that's Babylon. Remember Darius was the one who became king when they came in, they stormed the palace and they dethroned King Belshazzar, right? And he was killed, King Darius of the Medes. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books, according to the word of the Lord, to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. I referenced this earlier. It's in Jeremiah chapter 25, if you want to go see that. So Daniel's reading the scrolls. He's reading the Torah. He's reading the holy scriptures that have been inspired by God, spoken through prophets, through regular people. He reads this, and he's going, 70 years Remember when the story started in the book of Daniel and we said Daniel and his friends were probably teenagers, right? They're young men. This was around 605 BC that the Babylonian Empire became huge and took over Jerusalem. It is now, historically we know this, the first year of King Darius the Mede was in 539 BC. Do the math on that real quick. That's about 64 years. 66 years. I told you I hate math. 66 years, right? Take 605, subtract 539. So Daniel's a pretty old guy right now. But it's also been 66 years, and he just read it would be how many years? 70 years. What do you think is going through Daniel's head right now? I could, I could maybe go back to see Jerusalem before I die. I could go back to the holy promised land that God had given to his people. I could possibly see God's people set free from this. He might be pushed back in a wheelchair, but he might still get to see, right? Do you think hope and joy and excitement might be stirring up inside of Daniel's soul right now? 
We'll keep reading verse 3. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. That doesn't sound very celebratory, does it? I prayed to the Lord my God and what? Confessed. Remember, we said Daniel seems to have been a pretty good guy throughout this whole story. He's the only one we've seen in the story who is completely faithful, at least in the stories we get, in the midst of Babylon. And Daniel is confessing. What does he say? Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, fathers, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day, public shame belongs to us. The men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far, and all the countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty they have shown toward you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the Lord our God by following his instructions that he has set before us through his servants, the prophets. I want to read all of his prayer here because it's beautiful. Continuing verse 11, all Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He has carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us for the Lord our God is righteous in all he has done but we have not obeyed him now Lord our God who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is this day we have sinned we have acted wickedly Lord keeping with all your righteous acts may your anger and wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem your holy mountain for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Pause there. You just discovered, or maybe remembered, 70 years you'll be in Babylon. 70 years 
You were, you were taken out of your home, away from your family, your loved ones, your friends, away from the place you've always known. You were brought into a palace of a king who is out of his mind, into a, a nation of people who speak a completely different language, dress a different way, a completely new culture, and one that does not worship who you believe to be the God and creator over all things, who demands our worship. And so you're taught to worship their gods. And when you don't, you agree to dress like them, you agree to talk like them, but when you don't worship their gods and you keep worshiping your God, they threaten your very life. One, at one point, you are thrown into a pit with ferocious lions who have been starved and they're waiting to devour you. And all you can do is pray and trust that the God you have been worshiping will be there with you and protect you. Miraculously, he does. And you're saved from that, but you still got to wonder how long, how long is this going to go on? And at one point, you're now old, you're, you're in your twilight years, and you're reading through the writings of the prophet who said all this was going to happen. And you read 70 years. Wait a minute. It's been 60-something years. I might be able to go home soon. Our people might be able to go home soon. We've just seen that the Babylonian Empire was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. Maybe this new kingdom, this new government, this new nation of rulers will let us go home. And your first response, your first response is to do what the Jewish people did all the time when they would mourn, cover themselves with sackcloth and ashes. It means take off all your, your nice kingdom clothes that Daniel's walking around the palace in and put on raggedy, nasty clothes and spread ashes all over you to show mourning and death, loss, suffering. To not eat, to fast, and to pray, God, Forgive us. We have sinned against you. Just be honest. How many of you would have that response? I perhaps would, be, if I was Daniel, would be thinking like, God, it's about time. Right? I've been so faithful to you. Can you actually speed this up a little bit? Like, we don't need these last four years. Just send me home now. I'm going to die soon. I might miss it. God, keep me alive until then. Whatever you got to do, right? I, I might be, if I was in Daniel's shoes, looking around at the rest of Israel and being like, do you guys see what you did to us? Do you see what you brought on us? Because I've been, I've been good. I, I've been doing all the right things. In fact, the prophet he's reading from, Jeremiah, had a moment of that too. God, am I the only one out here telling your truth? And God's response to him, are you kidding me? You think you're that righteous? I got other people serving me too. I will protect my people and my name and my glory. Who do you think you are, really? Daniel rightly identifies himself 
with where he stands. He remembers probably his dream that we read in Daniel chapter 7, that no other human being had the right to go and sit on that throne next to the Ancient of Days except for one. One like a son of man. And guess what? It wasn't Daniel. Daniel stands on the side of sinners, recognizing I have also fallen short of this great, glorious God. I do not deserve to go back into Jerusalem. I have deserved to be here in exile, just like the rest of Israel, because I have also failed at times to worship God as the true king over all creation. And not only that, not only does he recognize his sin, but he also stands in a place as a mediator on behalf of the rest of his people. God, if, if, if I have been faithful in any way, and if you are willing to listen to me now, if you will hear me now, please, for your sake, not because we've been good, we haven't, but because you are righteous and merciful and gracious, would you do what you said you would do a long time ago through Jeremiah and rescue your people? Praying in accordance with what God had already said himself. I just got to be honest with you guys. Like, there are so many times I do what Jeremiah did and I'm comparing myself to people around me. And I'm going, God, why do they get away with that? Or, God, how come they seem to get rewarded by that? Like, if I can be completely honest with you guys right now, there's times I look at other churches that don't seem to be preaching the gospel and I go, why are they not having to worry about budgets right now? How sinful and wicked that is. As if, like Jeremiah, I'm, I'm the only one here sharing your gospel, right? Like we're the only church that's got it right, right? Far from it. Far from it on so many levels. Starting with me. And if we would have that same posture Daniel has to go, no, 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 I've blown it. Even on my best days, I do not deserve the grace of God. To, to mourn over that sin, to mourn over how we have grieved the God who has given us everything we need and we turn away from him spitting in his face trying to get something else. How we have rebelled against the king and we deserve nothing less than death. Daniel comes and he enters into that for a moment and he sits there. He doesn't just try to blow past that really quick. And again, if we're honest with ourselves, how many of us do that? Like, I don't like this feeling right now. It's okay. God loves you. It's okay. It, there's, there's forgiveness. That's what Jesus came for. Don't worry about it. Brush it off. No, 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 no. Sit in that for a moment. We have sinned and rebelled against the king over all things. This is why we, every single week we get together on Sunday, take some time to confess together. We start with a call to worship, reminding ourselves how great and glorious and amazing and good this God is, right? And Daniel even starts that out with his prayer. Oh God, the, the awe-inspiring God. And then we move into a time of confession every week because we take time to remember next to this amazing and perfect 
and beautiful and holy and righteous and just and awesome God. We're just like King Belshazzar. We don't measure up. You remember that story? You've been weighed and measured and you don't add up. We fall short of his glory. We take time to remind ourselves of that. And so we're gonna do that now. We, we didn't do it earlier in between our songs like we typically do because as we read this part of Daniel chapter nine, I think it's important that we sit in that for a moment and we confess. And so I wanna do that in light of Daniel's prayer and his confession. And if we could do that in a reverence to an almighty, awe-inspiring God by standing and respect for him together and read this confession of prayer with me, then that would be great. We have it on the slide. My part in the white, all of us together in the yellow. Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious promises and loves those who trust him. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your ways. We have not listened to your words spoken throughout the ages. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but shame belongs to us. Thank God. Thank God Daniel's prayer doesn't end there, right? Thank God he is not a God who wants us to sit in shame forever. We also, every single week we get together, we have a practice of not only a confession, but an assurance to remind ourselves that the story does not end there. There is a gracious, merciful, loving God. And so hear this. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God. Because of his righteousness, he has removed anger and wrath. He has heard the prayer of his people and made his face shine on us for his name's sake. He listens and hears. His eyes are opened and he sees. Next slide. We do not come before him by our righteous acts, but because of his abundant compassion. The Lord hears, the Lord forgives, the Lord listens and acts. Amen? Go ahead and have a seat. Daniel mentions that word righteous a lot in his prayer. And he's saying, God, you are so righteous, and yet we have sinned. And God, in your righteousness, you made a promise that if we rebelled against you, there would be discipline. And God, in your righteousness, you kept your word, just like you said through Moses a long time ago, just like he said through the prophet Jeremiah, and here we are in Babylon. That's because God is righteous. That word righteous, think about it in a terms of relationship. You are righteous when, with someone when you do right by them. The Hebrew word is sedek, T-S-E-D-E-Q. You don't need to know that, but if you really wanna like, I wanna make sure Chris is talking about righteousness in the right way, look it up, okay? So it, it means in relationship. And the best English translation I could think of for that is do right by someone. We don't, I don't know, do we say that often in conversation? I'm gonna do right by you, Steve. 
I, I used you as an example earlier, and I felt like I did wrong by you. I apologize. I'm going to do right by you. I'm going to give an example of you doing something awesome next time. <laughs> I'm going to do right by somebody. Like, your relationship with someone will dictate the way you do right by them, right? Or the way that you act rightly with them. So, for example, if my son, one of my sons is picking on his brother and taking toys from him and pushing him, it is righteous for me to go in and discipline that son and to restore to the other son what has been taken from him, right? But I'm not going to always have that posture toward that son because there's going to be moments where I'm going to come and cuddle with him and love him and play catch with him or something, right? The, the way I act rightly or righteously with my wife is going to look way different than the way I act righteously with Steve. Amen. It's, it's a relational thing. And it, it's in regards to the dynamics of that relationship. And so what Daniel is recognizing is it was right for you to treat us this way by putting us into captivity in Babylon, God, because we have sinned and we needed your discipline. It's righteous. And then he turns around and he says, in keeping, verse 16, in keeping with your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. It seems like this would be switching his character up, right? It's righteous for God to bring discipline on his people. And now he's saying, in order to continue being righteous, God, you need to turn away your wrath and anger from us. In order to continue in your righteousness, God, you need to now show us compassion and mercy. And he's not making an obligatory statement to God. He's making a statement that's in relation to who God has already proven himself to be. And what he's recognizing is, God, you made a promise that we would be an example people to the rest of creation. In order for your namesake, in order for your name to be held high and holy and in regard in all of creation, don't let us stay here in our sin. And don't let us stay here in captivity. God, in order for you to be seen as righteous, as glory, as incredible as you are, come and rescue us now. You said you would do it. Please come and do it. I love this. He says, not based on our righteous acts, verse 18, but based on your abundant compassion. Do we come to the Lord in that manner? Be honest with yourself right now in your heart. Do you come to the Lord in a way that is, God, I have performed for you so, or do you come before the Lord recognizing I have nothing to bring before you that makes me clean and righteous, but because of you, because of your abundant compassion. We love because he first loved us. Is that your posture when you go before the Lord? So Daniel has this right posture and he's mediating on behalf of all the people and it's a beautiful prayer. And then, check this out, he gets a visit from a messenger, one that he's seen before, Gabriel. And when we talked about this, usually when Gabriel shows up and gives a message to someone, it's usually good news, right? Yeah, so I'm excited to see what happens. I hope you guys are. Verse 20, we'll read the rest of the chapter. 
While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before the Lord my God concerning the holy mountain of my God, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, reached me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation. He said, Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. Remember chapter 8, that's what God told Gabriel to do. Hey, help this man, Daniel, understand. And at the end of the dream, Daniel woke up and said, I still don't understand. Well, hopefully it works better this time, right? Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. Verse 23, at the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to give it. For you are treasured by God. Okay, consistent with Gabriel. What we know of him, he's a messenger of good news. That's a pretty good thing to hear, right? You are treasured by God. And Daniel's probably thinking, yes, here we go. We're going back home. So consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end, there will be war, desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. And chapter 9 just ends right there. Daniel, do you understand? What? Okay. I told you I hate math. I was really, really good at math, though, actually. I remember in high school, sophomore year, I was taking the uh, trig class that my brother, who was a senior, was also taking, and I took it the hour before him, and as I was walking down the stairs, I would pass him some answers as he was walking up the stairs. That's <laughs> before the Lord got a hold of me, you guys. But uh, I, I would sleep in class all the time. I did this my first year in college, too, slept in class. Actually, what I did for math was I got the syllabus, found out when the test days were, and I only showed up on test days, and I passed. So I was good at math. I hate math. And the reason why is because I was like, I'm never going to use this. I didn't think I would be like yapping my mouth for a living, but I knew I wasn't going to be doing anything with math. I was like, I'm not going to use this. People never use this stuff. Like I use math every day, but not trigonometry, right? Not geometry, not calculus. So what's the point? And here's the thing. I was right and I was wrong. I don't use that stuff. So in a way, it was like, this is useless information for me, right? It was just about passing a test. But it was still important. It's still important. Tons of people use it every day. And I'm thankful that there are people that know that stuff because I don't. And I have to pay them to do those things. Like, Matt, you use math probably all the time doing construction, right? I hope you're good at it. (laughs) And that's why Matt can build a wall up in our office, and I can't do it. So it's important. This is important. 70 weeks and whatever that means, and we're going to talk about it in a second. It's important. But are you going to use it every day? Are you going to go out, like, 
thinking and pondering about what do the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9 mean every day? And is it going to affect the way that you interact with your neighbors and the way that you love your family and the way that you worship the Lord? Possibly. Is it the most important thing? Probably not, right? So I just want to give us again that reminder as I try to explain some math to us, some prophetic math. And there's all kinds of smart people who love Jesus who disagree on this. It's not the ultimate thing. It's okay. You may disagree with where I stand on this. That's okay. I'm not even 100% sure yet myself. Okay? So here's where we are. A lot of times we have uh, camps that look at this and they go, okay, we take the Bible 100% literal. That's what we should do. That sounds right. So 70 weeks are decreed. Do the math on that and you go, that's happened sometime not too long after Daniel, somewhere in history. And you could find uh, a priest of Jerusalem who would have been called an anointed one, by the way, uh, who was killed, who was cut down. Then there's people who also would, some of the same people who would say, you got to take everything literally in the Bible. But then when you get to that, you go, 70 weeks, that can't be right. Uh, but he's talking about the end, so I'm going to take that part literally. The end, and I'm going to say it's the end of all things. And so therefore, what Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel's talking about is some distant future. 70 weeks is not actually weeks. He's talking about something else. And so it's like, the last time I checked, like the math doesn't add up on that either because we're like 2,500 years past Daniel, right? So the math doesn't really add up on either of those. If we understand not just taking scripture literally, but also taking it Literarily, I think that makes sense. You following me? We need to understand this is written in a completely different time, culture, context. And that the Hebrew people did not say weeks in relation to seven days. They said weeks in relation to a set time of sevens. And usually... What they meant when they would say this phrase is, and actually the original language here isn't weeks. We translated that in the English. The original language just says 77s are decreed. 77s of what? This is the question then. And most scholars believe he means 70 of sevens of years. No, Daniel. I know you think it was going to be 70 years, but it's actually 70 times seven years that Israel will be in captivity. Guess what? From the moment that we get this decree to go and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem till around the moment Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, the last week of his life, if you did the math on that, it's roughly 483 years. He says after the first sevens, and then 62 more of the sevens. You do the math on that, 483 years. That seems right to me, okay? It seems right. Again, could be wrong. But if we are going to take it literally, we have to take it literarily. I think I had an extra syllable in there. This is not written in 2019 to Americans. We have to understand the language and the culture and the symbolism that the Hebrew people used often, okay? So, 77s, Daniel, sorry. 
I, I, I don't know personally, this is me talking. I don't know if Jeremiah got the interpretation wrong when God spoke to him with 70 years. I don't know if it was written down later incorrectly or if Daniel read it incorrectly or what. Or what's likely the case is that God first decreed 70 years and then he goes, no, you guys are still in so much sin. It's not enough. This is what he says. He says, my page just turned. Gabriel says, verse 24, 70 sevens are decreed about your people and your holy city. Why? For what purpose? To bring the rebellion to an end. To put a stop to your sin. To atone for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Like, these 70 years, Daniel, did not cut it to bring your rebellion to an end. Your rebellion still persisting. This 70 years did not cut it to put a stop to your sin. People are still in sin. The 70 years did not cut it to wash over and clean your wrongs. There's something more that's needed. That's the point of this. 70 sevens, not just seven, not just 70 and that number seven had a meaning of completion, of wholeness, of fullness, something to be fulfilled during that time. And he's saying, listen, it, it, this wasn't enough. It's like there will never be enough. That's an interpretation I don't think many of us have thought of before. Like maybe we should stop doing some math and think about what's really being said here. What's another moment in scripture, in the story you can remember Old Testament or New, where somebody says, no, 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 not seven, 70 times seven. Aaron, you had your hand up. What is that? Do you remember where? New Testament. Who's saying it? Yeah. There's actually three times in scripture, the only three that I'm aware of at least, where this number, 70 times 7, comes up. Does anybody know the other one? Okay, I didn't know it either until this week. So, let's bring it up. I got uh, Genesis 4, verse 24. What's happened in Genesis 4 is Cain, you remember the son of the first man and woman? Adam and Eve, they have Cain, they have Abel, and Cain kills, he murders his brother. This rebellion against God is starting quickly to get out of hand with the second generation only. Murder has taken place. And then you get this genealogy of Cain. And through that, there's this man named Lamech. And this is who's speaking in Genesis 4.24. Now what Lamech is referring to is when Cain is being disciplined for his rebellion, he says, this is too much, I can't handle it, and people are going to kill me if you send me out there. And we don't know who he's talking about, but God says, no, 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 if anyone comes after you, because you're still mine, then I will avenge you sevenfold. Lamech later murders a man, and he's speaking to his two wives. He's a lovely guy. He's speaking to his two wives about how he murdered somebody, and he says, if Cain's, his ancestors, revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's, his own, is 77-fold. Meaning, meaning, listen, it's not enough just to get revenge. Like if anyone comes after me, get revenge, right? It's interesting, all three of these scenarios, Genesis 4 with the 77s, Daniel 9 with the 77s, 
And then in Matthew 18, which we'll read in a moment with Jesus 77s, they are all talking about dealing with sin. They're all talking about dealing with rebellion and a way to account for it, a way to bring wholeness to it, a way to avenge it. So Matthew 18, Peter comes to Jesus. Jesus was just talking about forgiveness. And so Peter says, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And he's probably thinking like, that's pretty good, right? I'm a pretty patient dude. Jesus, give me a pat on the back. And Jesus goes, I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. Think about this. Jesus is showing up around the 490 years and he's saying, it's done. The, the sin that you could not atone for, 70 times seven. Like it's, you could never do enough to accommodate to make up for what you have done against the Lord. There's nothing, as Gabriel says, that will bring your rebellion to an end, to put a stop to your sin, to atone for your iniquity. And Jesus shows up and says, now, the other two were dealing with judgment for sin 70 times seven. I say forgiveness 70 times seven has come. I don't know about you guys, but when I stop thinking about the math, and I start thinking about Jesus saying the fullness of forgiveness has come to meet the fullness of your sin, my heart starts melting. My head stops spinning over numbers, and my heart starts melting over this beautiful grace that we've been given. And so this messenger Gabriel, so many sevens later, shows up to give a message that there is going to be one born now who is going to have the government upon his shoulders. He's going to be the prince of peace. He is the ruler all of creation has been waiting for. And he is coming to bring the fullness, the fulfillment of your exile. He is bringing you back to be God's people once again, the way you were intended to be. Forgiveness 70 times 7 and over and over and over not because of our righteousness, but because of God's abounding compassion and mercy. This is the story that we live in. This is a story that we want to invite others into. And this is a story that we pray we go as missio to be an example of to the community around us, pointing back to, as representatives, this good, merciful God. Pray with me.